Hello. It was, uh, thank you, Ronnie and Melissa, for hosting us. Um, yeah, I actually grew up in Columbus, Ohio, so don't hold that against me. And uh, I owe, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we live in Iowa now. My wife is uh, over here. This is Aubrey. And I've got, I have four kids. One's missing. So if you see a, someone that looks like them <laughs> running around. <laughs> um, so they live, we live in Iowa now, but my wife and family are Buckeye fans. And my wife is a troublemaker. She'll, she'll dress the kids up in Buckeye gear and parade them around town and just kind of scowl at people. So, <laughs> yeah. That's how we grow our church. Um, so anyway, thanks for having us here. I'm excited. It's supposed to be a week off. I'm on vacation, but I love preaching, and um, Ronnie has graciously asked me to do that, so I'll do that today, and by God's grace, it'll be helpful to you. So let me pray, and we'll get going here. Uh, God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your word and um, for sending Jesus really to save us. It's what we were celebrating at Christmas, that he came to us you came to us in a way that we could know you and you could know us and uh, we could have fellowship together. And, uh, and you lived the life on our behalf, the perfect life and, and obedience to you and perfect holiness and love. And then he marched faithfully to the cross to give his life for us and to save us from our sins. So I pray, God, that we would be stirred afresh by that news that you would keep it from becoming old news. It, always, it is always good news. There are always areas in our life where we are not believing this. So would you help us? Would you give us your great mercy? Teach us to trust you and love you and to walk in that today and the rest of the week. In Jesus' name, amen. So I had the pleasure this uh, past fall of preaching Psalm 51, a 12-part series. And uh, so if you want to open your Bibles to Psalm 51, that's where we're going to be. And what I'm going to attempt to do today is, is uh, preach all 12 of those. So we're going to go through lunch, at least. Now what I'll do is I want to try to give a summary of what it's all about, and I want to narrow in on one of the verses. Um, really, one of the, the prayers, David's prayer here. Before we do that, let me ask you a question, right? If you could have three wishes, what would it be, right? So you're coming up on the new year, and you're looking forward to 2016, and always hope, right? We kind of are forward-looking people. We look about over and say, what's going to be different next year? What's, what ways do I want to change? And so I'll just pull out that old cliche, if you had three wishes, what would they be, right? And so what pops into your head? And think carefully, and I would say go big. There's an old uh, short story called The Monkey's Paw. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with it. They, there's a movie version, and there's actually a Simpsons version, which is where I get all my cultural <laughs> references. It's The Simpsons. Now, I read it back in high school, and it stuck with me, and, uh, because there's a twist. There's like a sick twist in the, in the book, and I'm sick and twisted. So I remembered this, and here's the gist of the story, is that they find, this family finds a monkey's paw. It's literally, that's what it is, a dried-up monkey's paw. And it comes attached with the ability to make wishes, kind of like a, 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 a genie's lamp or something would be, right? And so they get wishes. And they make a wish that they would have some money. Right? So that'd be nice, right? Have some money, some financial freedom. And the wish is granted. They come in the money. 
And the way that they come into the money is that the son is killed in an accident at work. And then they get some compensation from the company. So you start to see the twist, and what's built into this is that there's a hook. Be careful what you ask for. Yeah, you can ask for the money, but what comes with it, right? So then, well, they have more wishes. Well, that's easy, right? We'll just wish for the, my son to come back. That's what the mother does. She wishes for the son to come back. And he does, and he comes back like a zombie, right? He comes back, and he's not who he was. He's like the walking dead. And then the final wish, uh, the father wishes for the son to die, to go back. And there ends the story. And the whole point, I think, is be careful what you wish for. Because you can't see through to all the implications and correlations and possibilities. So I asked the question, if you had three wishes, right? Let's narrow it down. What if you had one? Just one. One wish or one prayer, as I've titled this sermon, because a wish is kind of thrown to the air. It goes to nobody, and nobody hears it. But a prayer is directed to God. And God hears us. He's real, he's alive, and he hears us. So if you had one prayer... And I'm putting it in the context of looking forward to 2016. But really, this is relevant any time. If you had one prayer, what would it be? What would you ask for? I went online and Googled, you know, if I had three wishes. And you could, there's tons of links that come up. And just read what people put. There's all these blogs. And people are wishing or praying for things, good things, like financial security. Nothing wrong with that. Or to have... Uh, a girlfriend, right, to not be alone. Here's one person's three wishes, was world peace, less pollution, and to quickly learn animation techniques. <laughs> this is literally, I'm not making this up. Because I figure at that point, if you've got world peace, then <laughs> you've got time on your hands, right? So, but what is yours? What is your, your prayer? And what I want to take us to here is to see what David's prayer is. So, if you're familiar with Psalm 51 or the story behind this, this will be um, a bit of a reminder, a bit of a review. If you're not, I want to set some context. So Psalm 51 is written by David. David was king of Israel and often referred to and probably the greatest king. And he also had great sin. So if you want to read the story, you can go back to 2 Samuel 11 and read what happened. But basically, I'm going to tell you, David got proud of his position, and he got secure in his power, and he sinned greatly. And we see this in the beginning of 2 Samuel 11. It says that at the time when all the kings went out to war, David stayed home. And rather than going out to war, he walked up on top of his rooftop, and he looks over his kingdom. And he's just gloating and basking in his own glory. And we know this because he didn't go to war. He didn't obey and do what kings are supposed to do. He stayed and he surveyed his kingdom. And a woman caught his eye named Bathsheba. So we know he's not walking with God. He's looking over his, his glory and his kingdom, and he catches the sight of a beautiful woman bathing. And he demands that she be brought to him, because he's got it like that. Bring me this woman. And he commits adultery. And then he's found out, right? And many of you know that the Nathan prophet is sent, or the prophet Nathan is sent to him later, and I'll spare you all the details, but basically he gets called out. David, you've sinned greatly. Not only did you commit adultery, but David also had the woman's husband killed so that he wouldn't be discovered. He had her husband murdered. He's sinning great. Now, this is the greatest king, right? The greatest king in the history of Israel. David. 
and he sinned greatly. Great king with great sin. And what we believe is that Psalm 51 reveals that there's a great God with great mercy. David was discovered, and he repented. And the, this, his repentance led to the writing of Psalm 51. That's what this is. It's him crying out to God after seeing his sin and seeing God's great mercy. So let me, with that as a background, let me fly through this, this psalm and just kind of read quickly most of it, and then I'm going to zoom in on a particular part. So this is David's cry to God after he is discovered and he repents. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, not according to me and who I am and what I've done and my works, because they are filthy works. But according to your steadfast love, according to who you are, have mercy. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Remember them no more, right? Forgive me. And this is the good news of the gospel, that God forgives sins through the work of Jesus Christ. We know as the Bible unfolds that the way God is going to do this is by sending his son Jesus to be the substitute for our sins, to stand in our place and absorb the wrath of God for us so that we can stand in his place and receive God's great gifts and blessings. David doesn't know exactly how this is going to work out yet. He doesn't know about Jesus at the cross, but he knows there's a God with abundant mercy. And he knows that the way that God needs to relate to him is not according to his works, but according to his, according to God's. So wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Change me. He wants not just this external overlooking of sin. He wants this internal transformation. He looks at himself and sees who I am led to what I do. So don't just look away from my sin, God, but transform me and change me. Why? Because I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. David went at least nine months, we know this, based on the context back in 2 Samuel, without repenting. Going to temple, offering bulls and offering sacrifices in sin and not being aware of it. Kind of justifying himself. And Nathan, the prophet Nathan, comes to him and calls him out. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, David is led to see his sin, the reality of his sin, the reality of God's grace, and he now sees it. And he says, my sin is ever before me. I am conscious of my sin. And I'm so conscious of you, God, and your holiness that I know that against you and you only have I sinned, which is a crazy statement. Because didn't he sin against Bathsheba? Didn't he sin against Uriah? Didn't he sin against all kinds of people, against the whole country, the whole nation? But he says, my sin is so great, and you are so holy that ultimately this sin is really between me and you, God. Against you and you only have I sinned, and I've done what is evil in your sight. And there's a purpose in this, God. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. And I, could, I desire to camp on that verse, but I can't. And he starts to talk more about his sin in these first few verses. That's really what he's looking at. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. From birth I have sinned. My problem is not the things that I did. My problem is the way that I am. The problem is not that I made a few bad choices, but that I'm a bad seed. I have sin. From the time I was born, I have sin. In sin did my mother conceive me. But behold, God, you delight in truth in the inward being. You teach me wisdom in the secret heart, God. So you come and transform me. This is repentance. This is what it looks like. This is a prayer of repentance. This Pray that this would be present in your life to some extent. That our sin would become so real to us that we sound like David. Not just like, oh, my bad. 
Uh, everybody makes mistakes. But know that we see our sin ever before us. We see his abundant mercy. And he cries out to God, purge me, change me. I don't want to be this way. Because if I stay the way I am, this will happen again tomorrow, or the next week, or next year. Something needs to be transformed, namely me. So purge me with hyssop. I shall be clean. Wash me. I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. He's crying out for this internal transformation. And he goes on to ask God to transform him. And he talks about how he will go on mission and tell sinners and transgressors about the ways of God. And they will return to him. He talks about how he will praise God, how he will sing aloud of his righteousness. And he goes on to talk about how once he's internally transformed, then he can go back to temple and offer bulls and sacrifices with the right spirit. And then they'll be acceptable to God. But what I want us to do is pause right here in verse 11. And this is his prayer. This is the one prayer that I think will suffice. We'll catch them all. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Take not your Holy Spirit. So this is what we're going to talk about today. The Holy Spirit. Right? We're going to teach about tongues, and how to practice, and talk in tongues. We're going to do that today before we leave. You didn't know this. I'm out. I'll never be back. I needed off next, next Christmas is what it was. No. We're not going to talk about that. We're going to go big picture on the Holy Spirit. Who is he and what does he do? Because I'm making an enormous claim here. That if this is your singular prayer, this would, catch, this would be a catch-all prayer. That this would be sufficient. You don't need three, four, five, six, seven, eight, ten, a thousand prayers or a thousand wishes. Now, you can pray all you want and say tons of prayers, but what I want to do is cut, get down to the, the root of it and ask, if there was one prayer, if you just had one thing to ask for, what would it be? And I think it's this. God, be present with me. Let's be together. I want to be with you. So take not your Holy Spirit from me. So if you're out there and you're not a Christian, what I want you to know is this. That God sent Jesus to die for your sins. You're a sinner. And you have sinned. You're no better than David. And you were brought forth in iniquity. But God, being rich in mercy, sent Jesus to die for you. To stand in your place. Take the wrath of God in your place. So that you can become the righteousness of God. So you can be healed and forgiven and adopted. So that he can give you the Holy Spirit. That's the point. That's why. You've been forgiven. You are no longer guilty. Considered guilty, your transgressions have been blotted out, and therefore God can give you his Holy Spirit. And if you are a Christian, and that has happened to you, you've been forgiven, and you've been given the Holy Spirit, like David has, you still need filled with the Holy Spirit. Because you cannot walk in line with the Holy Spirit. This is why Paul tells us in the book of Galatians, walk by the Spirit. Why would he tell me that unless it's possible not to? Because we can ignore the Spirit. We can quench the Spirit. We cannot be in tune with God. We cannot be in line with his presence and attuned with that. And I'm telling you that if that was our singular prayer, if God would provide that for us, it would solve everything. It would strengthen us for all things. David, let me rewind a little bit back to 2 Samuel. When he got busted 
God brought some judgment on him. And he said, there will be war against you and your household for years to come. And also, he said, the child that Bathsheba has born you will die. Will die. So now you stand before God, and you know he has power to answer prayers. What would you pray for if your child had just died? Maybe for him to come back? Let's assume he doesn't come back like a zombie. Just, just let me have him back, God. Or maybe preserve my household from being in war for years to come. He goes be, below all that. And he says, God, I need one thing, one thing I ask of you that will sustain me through the death of a child in war against my household if I know that you are with me. If I have the presence of God, if you don't take your Holy Spirit from me, if you and I, God, can be united in spirit and I know your presence, I can be sustained through anything. Through anything. Because the gospel is the good news that we get God. The gospel is not the good news that we get jobs. You may get a job, you may not. The gospel is not the good news that you get married. You may get married, you may not. The gospel is not the good news that your church will grow. It may, it may not. The gospel is the good news that God will be with you. You will be his people, and he will be with you. And when we have that, we can have the job, we can lose the job. We can have the kids, we can lose the kids. We can have the marriage, we can lose the marriage. And all these things become subservient to the true thing, which is knowing and being in the presence of God. Now what I'm going to do as I proceed here in this in this message is I'm going to complicate this theologically. Because that's what guys do that went to seminary. So we're going to talk about the Nicene Creed and we're going to talk about some biblical exposition. But I do want to, I want to lean on a friend of mine. His name's Doug. He's a, a blue-collar guy. Doesn't read. Doesn't know a lot of theology. But he got saved at our church a few years ago through some hardships. And I remember we did his baptism and, you know, when you do a baptism, you stand up and you talk, right? You share something about who God is for you and what he's done. And I remember Doug's words very simply. He stood up before the church, simple, simple, he's simple-hearted man. And he stood up before the church and he said, we just need the Holy Spirit. And then he got baptized. And that just hit me. I thought, he's right. He's absolutely right, because the presence of God is enough. So we're going to talk about that. Who is this Holy Spirit, and what does he do? Why is his presence enough for us? But it is that simple. So if you could take one thing away today, don't take my words away. Take Doug's words away. One thing, the Holy Spirit. Take not your Holy Spirit from me, God. So who is this Spirit? Spirit, the Holy Spirit. I asked the kids on the way up today, who's the Holy Spirit? So my kids are sitting here today. I told them we were going to Ronnie's church. And they said, that's the place with no class for kids, right? <laughs> I said, sorry, you're going to have to listen to your father preach. And they all went. But I told them I'd, I'd mention them. They're right now at the age where they still like that. You know, when they're 15, 16, they'll be like, oh, gosh, Dad. But they like being mentioned. I asked them today, who's the Holy Spirit? They said, Jesus. Okay. Maybe some of you think that. Let's, let's get it clear. Let's talk about who the Holy Spirit is. And in short, the Holy Spirit is God. It's God. Francis Chan wrote a book called The Forgotten God. 
In which in one sense he's saying the, the Holy Spirit is underrepresented in the church. Maybe, maybe not. In a sense, I believe that we are supposed to major on Jesus. So if you've got three persons in, in, in the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, I do believe that the Son is the one we're supposed to major on. The Son is what we're supposed to preach mostly about. Jesus Christ, His glory, His work on our behalf. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the one that the Holy Spirit is glorifying. So in one sense, if we're off balance and talking about Jesus a lot more than the Holy Spirit, that's not necessarily wrong, I think. I think it's biblical. But there's a time to come and say, who is this Holy Spirit? David prays for him. How often do we pray for that? We pray to the Father. Father, help me with this. Jesus, help me be exalted. Do you pray and talk to the Holy Spirit? Do you ask God for the Holy Spirit? Who is this? He's a bit mysterious. And we do say, as Christians, that we believe in the Trinity. There's a Father, Son, and a Holy Spirit. That God is one. There's one God. One God. There are not other gods. There is one. But this God is composed of three persons. And that's a paradox. It's a bit of a mystery, right? Like, well, how does that work? And I would just encourage you, if you're out there and you're saying, see, that doesn't make any sense. Every worldview has paradoxes. Every worldview has challenges and puzzles. Christianity is the same. Don't leave a faith or a belief system because it has paradox. Atheism has paradoxes. I was an atheist for years. And I look back now and I understand better the paradoxes. Atheism claims that there's no God. There's no God, right? No all-knowing, personal God who's caring for the universe and providing blessings. If there's no God, then I would challenge you and ask you this. Explain the existence of the McGriddle. right? Take that. No, honestly, that's really good. Some of you are like, I think that proves the existence of Satan. But it depends on who you ask. You like McGriddles, right, Augie? That's right. God is real. It's good. <clears throat> no, but seriously, everything has a paradox. Atheism claims that there's no God. And if there's no God, then there's no judge, no rules, no real rules. And yet, atheists want to talk about human rights. They want to talk about how we should love each other. It says who? It says you? Who are you? If there's no God, there's no good. Every worldview has a paradox. Every worldview does. So don't run from paradox. The question is, do you have the right one? And we believe we have the right one. The biblical paradox of one God and three persons. And there's a lot that can be said about this. You can read Jonathan Edwards on this, and it'll blow your mind. But let me try to keep this simple. There is one God, three persons. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The main point is today that the Holy Spirit is God. It's not some impersonal force. It's God with us, God present. The Nicene Creed, this was written early in the early church when Christians were defending and articulating the Christian truths. They articulated the Trinity. Now, the word Trinity is not in the Bible, but the teachings are. The Bible teaches that there's one God. And when they were articulating these things, they wrote the Nicene Creed, and here's Quickly, what it says. We believe in one God. And then it goes to describe the three persons. Number one, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. And number two, in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, light of very light. And you'll see this, even in the Nicene Creed, he gets more attention. It's longer. Who is he? Oh, he's light of very light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. I mean, there's a lot of complex language in here, but you get the sense of it? That he deserves worship. 
by whom Jesus Christ all things were made, and who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Ghost of the Virgin Mary, and he was made man, he was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate, and suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again according to the scriptures, and he ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of God. He goes on to describe Jesus more, the Father, the Son, and then the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life who proceeds from the Father, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped. Only God deserves worship and glorified. Who spoke by the prophets. The Holy Spirit is God. When David cries out for the Holy Spirit, he's crying out for God. Be with me. That's why he says, cast me not from your presence, take not your Holy Spirit from me. Why? Because it's the same thing. To have the Holy Spirit is to be in the presence of God. That's who he is. And I've got tons of texts in here that can prove more biblically the teaching of the Trinity, but I, but I can't. I need to move on. Because I want to get to the question of, what does he do? Sure, this is who he is, second person of the Trinity, blah, blah, blah. What does he do? What does he do for me? And in some sense, some of you go, is that right to ask? Yes. Because the Bible is filled with promises of who God will be for you. He doesn't expect you to be removed and stoic about it and just have objective facts. He's promising joy for you. He's promising peace for you. He's promising freedom for you. So it's completely right to say, okay, God, what's in this for me? Does this sound unchristian? It's not. We believe that God is good and glorious. And to see his glory gives us joy. It's not irrelevant. It's connected. And so the question is, what does the Spirit do? And in one sense, you can say, everything God does, the Spirit does. Everything God does, He does by the power of the Spirit. Everything God does, He does by the power of the Spirit. So what does the Spirit do? Everything. Everything. But that's too much to take in, so we're going to take a few things. I'm going to list four, five, six things the Spirit does that hopefully are big enough to say, yeah, this is a valid prayer. If I'm going to go down to the bottom and ask God just one prayer, I'm going here. Take not your Holy Spirit. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Give me a sense of your presence. And I want to point out that in this is implied spirituality. We're talking about supernaturalism here. It's the Holy Spirit. This is spirituality. Often the term is actually kind of popular, right? I'm the spiritual person. But what people mean by that is, I mean, I'm emotional. But that's not what it means. It means there's spirits. Next time you talk to someone who denies God and says, but I'm still a spiritual person. Do you know you said spirit, spirits, the Holy Spirit. We often reduce Christianity to a moral system. Okay, I know we should be kind of good and I'm kind of bad, so I'll go to church. They'll teach me how to be better and I'll just be better. But that's not the essence of Christianity. The essence of Christianity is that God is spirit. He transcends the created world. And he has omniscient power and holiness, beauty and love and mercy. And we are made of dust. And the good news is that God is going to take those of us who are made of dust, transform us, give us his Holy Spirit, and give us the ability to be united with him in fellowship and relationship, to tap into the supernatural world. This isn't just a system of ethics. We're being offered the opportunity to transcend this earth and connect with the spirit of the living God. 
This is big. And I don't know how often we live there. I know I slip in and out of that, in and out of that, right? And life just becomes earthy. And I'm not talking about escape from this world. I'm talking about power in this world through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit does everything God does. It's God's presence, his power pushed out into the world. He gives life. Look, this is Genesis 2-7. Well, in Genesis 1-1, we see this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was, out, was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Why? To create, to bring order. The Spirit is creating. And this, in one sense, everybody, there's a lot of religions and worldviews that will say, yeah, there's a, there's a spirit kind of power that animates the universe. Right? But Christianity goes beyond that. It's not just animation. It's this personal God. Acts 17, 28 says it this way. In him, in God, we live and move and have our being. We live in God. In him, we move and have our being. If God stops thinking about us, we disappear. This is how closely we are tied in to God and the power of the Holy Spirit. But not just general life. You've got this this idea that the Spirit provides general animation in life, but specific life. Genesis 2-7 The Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed. And that's the Hebrew word ruach, which means spirit or breath. This is the spirit of God coming into Adam. and Breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. So the spirit of God provides power and animation for all of existence. And then specifically for humans, gives life, the breath of life. You're coming, what could be more important than that? Mere existence. By the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is a personal God. Listen, this is, this is C.S. Lewis. I love C.S. Lewis. If you're not a C.S. Lewis reader, repent. Allah, Psalm 51. And take it to the Lord. But C.S. Lewis is great. He helps me see things. And he talks about this idea that it's popular and okay to admit that there's some kind of spiritual power out there that you know, runs the universe. But it's very impersonal. I believe in a higher power, but not like not a personal God. And he, commenting on that, says this. It's really what could be called pantheism. And some of you think, well, that's just Hinduism or Buddhism. It's very popular. Wiccanism is pantheist. There's a lot of people who don't even have systemized categories, but they just kind of believe in this energizing force, but it's impersonal. It's called pantheism. He says, the reason it's popular is this. The pantheist God, it does nothing. It demands nothing. He's there if you wish for him, like a book on a shelf. But he will not pursue you. There's no danger that at any time heaven and earth should flee away his glance. And he says this. It's with a shock that we discover the truth. The truth being that it's not just this impersonal animating power. But there's a real personal God. He says, it's with a shock that we discover that truth. You've had a shock like that before in connection with smaller matters when you're fishing and the line pulls at your hand. There's something there. When something breathes beside you in the darkness, so here the shock comes at the precise moment when the thrill of life is communicated to us along the clue we have been following. It's always shocking to meet life where we thought we were alone. Look out, we cry, it's alive. 
God's alive. It's not just an impersonal force. And therefore, it is at this very point at which so many draw back. Right? An impersonal God? Well and good. Inside our own heads? Better still. A formless life force surging through us? Best of all. But God himself? Alive? Pulling at the other end of the cord? Perhaps approaching at an infinite speed? The hunter? King? The husband? That is quite another matter. He says there comes a time... When children who have been playing at burglars hush suddenly, were those real footsteps in the hall? There comes a moment when people who have been dabbling in religion, man's search for God, suddenly draw back, supposing we really found him. We never meant it to come to that. Or we're still supposing he found us. The Bible teaches us that God is not just an impersonal force. He's a personal God. And he's actively involved in our lives and gives animation to all of reality. And he gives life specifically to human beings and all creatures with the breath of life. But not just that. That's physical life. And everybody gets that. Everybody. Everybody who's alive is receiving, in some sense, the work of the Holy Spirit. But there's a special gift for Christians. And it is spiritual life. With which the first birth is a picture of what's to come. Says Jesus in John 3, speaking to Nicodemus a Jewish teacher who's not really understanding things. And Jesus says this to him. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Oh, you may be born, Nicodemus, you may be walking around on this earth, but you can't actually see reality. It's like a Christmas carol. You've seen that movie? There's a spoiler alert. I know many of you haven't seen that. Things like 80 years old. Um, What's the story? The story is that Scrooge... He's alive, he's walking around, but he has a a twisted interpretation of reality. And that's how we can be. And that's what the Bible's teaching that humans are. We're alive, the Spirit has given us breath and animation, and we're walking around, but we don't see the kingdom of God. We're blind to His abundant mercy. We're blind to the fullness of our sin. We're blind to the work of Christ. We're blind to this. And so we don't see. And Jesus says, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. We need to not just be born the first time, we need to be born the second time. And this is where the work of the Holy Spirit comes and not only gives us breath of life in our nostrils and our blood and our veins, but it gives us the breath of life in our hearts and our spirits. Jesus says, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So without the Holy Spirit, we don't have physical life, we don't have spiritual life. We've got nothing. That should be enough to take us down to this root prayer. God, take not your Holy Spirit from me. I need this. Spirit blows where he wills. We need him to understand, to see reality. Um, Many of you may or may not have seen the movie Memento. I'm not going to recommend it because there's a lot of curse words in it. But it's really good. And so I am going to spoil this. Here's the basic concept. You've got this man who has short-term memory loss. He can't remember anything since he had his accident, and he can't remember anything. So every day, I mean, he can remember things for like five minutes, and then it goes away, and then it goes away. He keeps resetting every day. Every day when he wakes up, he's got all these tattoos that tell him who he is. So he walks up to the mirror, and he says, this is your name, this is your mission. He's looking for the man that killed his wife. Someone raped and killed his wife. And what he's doing, he's on a mission to find this man. But how do you do that when you can't remember anything? He makes tattoos on his body of clues. He wakes up and he reviews his life. Oh, that's who I am. And this is 
what I'm after. And here's the clues to the man that I need to find and kill to avenge my wife's death. And this is a spoiler because the, the key, the revelation in the movie happens when he gets mad at a man who is not the murderer and he knows it. But in a spirit of bitterness and vengeance, he goes back to the truck and he writes down that man's license plate intentionally identifying him as the murderer. Knowing he's not. He's lying to himself. And he knows that in five minutes he'll forget this. He'll pick up this paper and as far as he knows, this man is the murderer. And he'll go to the tattoo shop And he'll get this tattooed on his arm, and he'll spend the rest of his life chasing that man down to kill him. He lied to himself. And he says to himself as he's writing this, you know, so will I lie to myself to be happy? Yes. And he says, don't we all? And really the whole point of the movie is that that's who we are, I think. And we don't remember who we are. We don't know who we are. We are, according to the Bible, sons of God. And we have short-term memory loss. We can't make it five minutes, ten minutes with remembering who we are. We've got to stand in front of the mirror and rehearse. And what we're trying to do by the preaching of the gospel is put tattoos of identity in your mind and hearts and say, you are sons of God. You have been forgiven of sin. Jesus Christ, his work on the cross is finished. You don't have to justify yourself. You don't have to provide your own security and freedom. You are adopted. You are brought into the family of God. This is who you are. And without the power of the Holy Spirit, we're like this man. Weaving tales of who we are. Telling ourselves lies about what matters. Telling ourselves lies about origins. Telling ourselves lies about purpose. And we are unable to remember without the power of the Holy Spirit. You cannot remind yourself ultimately of the gospel. You need to know this. You need the Holy Spirit. My job here today is not to tell you the gospel and then tell you, and by your power and your strength, remember this this week. Go forth into your workplaces. Go forth into your marriages. Go forth into your parenting situations. Go forth into your neighborhoods and by your power and strength, tap into eternity and know who you are and live that way. Absolutely not. You don't have the power. But the good news is, he does. And this is your single prayer. God Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Help me to walk in light of who you are and who I am. Take me not from your presence. I want to walk in line with you. I want freedom. I want joy. I want peace. No matter what comes, I need you, God. God brings understanding. God brings physical life. God brings spiritual life. He brings spiritual reminders of who we are throughout the day, throughout the weeks, and on from here until we die and meet him face to face. The Holy Spirit is our best friend. This is what we need. I've got so many notes and so little time. So that's good. God knows that. Let me tell you one more thing. This is related to truth. And I've been talking about this. That we can't know who we are. We can't know who God is. We can't even know reality. Right? I'm talking about a prayer that goes down to the root. How do you get under that? God, help me know reality. We're praying for jobs and sicknesses, and that's fine. But do you see how this cuts under all that? God, help me see reality. Help me know truth. I want to see. I want to be awake. I don't want to be in slumber. This is enlightenment. 1 Corinthians 12.3 says this. 
Therefore, I want you to understand that no one, speaking in the Spirit of God, ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. No one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit, by the power of the Holy Spirit. You can't even confess who Jesus is. Now, you can say that. Many of you go, oh, I can say that. Jesus is Lord. You can't really say it. You can't mean it. It's like your kids. You tell them at dinner time or at Christmas, right? Say thanks. I can make my kids say thanks. They're obedient. Say thanks. Thanks. But you know what I can't make them do? Be thankful. Okay. Be thankful. And they just look at you like, huh? And I'm like, I don't know. What do we do? How do we do that? Who's got the keys to the heart? Who can go under our words? We can mouth words. Hey, say Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Oh, but, but, but say it. Mean it. Preach it. Believe it. Walk it. You can't do that. Except in the Spirit. We can't see that God is our Father. We can't see that we've been redeemed from the curse of the law. Yes, that God is a judge. God does judge sin. But for the Christian... He's no longer our judge. We no longer relate to him as judge. He is our father. We have a place and we can't know that except by the power of the Holy Spirit. Romans 8.15 You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons. By whom? By the spirit we cry out, Abba, Father. I have a father. I am not fatherless. Without the spirit, I am an orphan. I am fatherless. But by the power of the Holy Spirit, I can know my place in this world. And you can. Galatians 4, 6 says the same thing. Because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And what is the role of the Father? He he protects, He provides, He blesses. And we are often relating to Him as a judge and a commander. (laughs) I play interesting mind games with my children. So I've got a four-year-old named Zissa. She's over here sleeping now. And she'll, she asked me a couple weeks ago, can I be in charge? Can I have authority? You know, I said, sure, let's see how this goes. The interesting thing is I can take it back from her so she doesn't really realize that she never really had it. But I said, yeah, sure, go ahead. And you know what she does? <laughs> it's really terrible. Do this with your kids. It'll reveal how they view authority. Sure, yeah, you'll you be in charge for the next five minutes. She, you, brush your hair. You, Put your coat on. You sit down. You should just bark in orders. I'm like, ooh. So that's how she sees me. And that's how she sees God. This is who God is. He's just the commander. Oh, and he is. He has authority. But what we need to see is that we're no longer under him as a judge. He is our father. And fathers don't just bark out commands. My other daughter, Allegra, says, okay, she kind of picked up on the situation, right? She goes, okay, that's not good. Um, Let me be in charge. I said, okay, you can be in charge. She goes, you can do whatever you want. It's like, well, it doesn't quite work like that. So they're just, this is why they can't be in charge, right? But they don't see that God is not just commanding orders, but he's providing for us. And many of you are operating that way still. As though God is the judge. And your days shift depending on whether or not you feel you've done a good enough job for him or a bad job. And so you feel ashamed or you feel despair. You're relating primarily to him as a judge instead of a father. And only by the power of the Holy Spirit can you cry out, Abba, Father. I'll leave you with a brief, another brief illustration of this. This was 
quite a few years ago, and we used to live in California, and my son Augie was probably two or so, and we were potty training him. So this will be a little embarrassing for you, but he's fully potty trained now, so don't worry about it. <laughs> we had this little room. We, we all lived in one room, and so he had this little bed in the corner, and it was, had a bookshelf and a curtain. That was his bedroom. It was like just his bed fit in there. He was like two, and he's being potty trained. And so I'd go in there at night, you know, and, and do things. And I remember one, one time I walked in, and I looked over at him, and he had been peeking out, right? He should be asleep, but he's peeking out. And when I looked at him, he did this. It was the first time I ever saw this. He lowered his eyes in shame and hid behind the curtain. And I was like, what, what is this? And I went back there, and I opened the curtain, and I said, what's wrong, Augie? And he said, I have poo. Right? But here's the thing, is that he didn't know that I love him when he has poo. I mean that, right? Like, he thought it's time to hide. There's the judge. There's the judge. So I'll hide behind the curtain. And I'll hide my face in shame. And here he is. This is how he relates to me. So what do I do? I go to him, and I pull open the curtain. I get in his little bed, and I hug him in his poo. I mean, I, I mean he had a diaper on, so I'm, that's why you need God. He comes to us. And only by the power of the Holy Spirit can we break through this, this idea that God, that we stand as judged. And we don't. It is finished. And we no longer have a judge. We have a father. And I've got way more notes here. And I went five minutes over where you told me to go. So I'm going to stop and just encourage us. Let's do this. Let's pray for this today and throughout this year. God, give me your Holy Spirit. Stir it up within me. So let's pray now. God, thank you for your grace and mercy. Thank you for the Holy Spirit. And I pray that you would stir.